two Benedictines, two Europeans, two men of the 20th century, both of them going to India. Quite a lot in common, but also quite a lot of material to do in one evening. So I have in fact prepared um, some bits of paper which Liz will give you, uh, which is in each case a brief, very brief chronology of main events and um, a bibliography. And um, so in each case also I want to talk, I'm not being, meaning to be too sort of dividing time down the middle, but um, I want to talk for about half an hour and then have lots of you because they're both men who valued experience, particularly Richard Dinanda, but Bede too. So I don't want it to be just a sort of, you know, pushing material onto you sort of thing. In fact, my approach to Father Bede, this, I call this talk Dwarfs on the Shoulders of Giants, because of that Newton phrase, you know, um, dwarf, that we're dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. And if we see further now, than our ancestors, it's because of people like Bede and Abhishek Tananda. And I particularly want to talk, in the case of, of Bede, I want to talk about his effect on so many people, how he touched our lives, and also why. And I think why he had such an impact, and why his personality and his thinking continue so strongly, ten year, well, more than 10 years after his death now, what is it, 12, to affect people. I think even more, I think I would say he had an effect on the spiritual climate in which we now live. His life and his writings have actually caused a perceptible shift in our thinking. And I think one of the reasons he touched so many lives is because in many ways he was like us. He was like us any more so. And I would like to touch some aspects of this man I never met through so the particular lens that's personal to me, but which I believe is shared by many of us. It's as if he was a macrocosm to our microcosm. I will occasionally use myself as an example, because after all, I can only guess to what extent he was like you. He lived fully the inner spiritual life so many of us are drawn to, though most of us are distracted by the world, by relationships, by sex, by marriage, children, jobs, while he was utterly dedicated to his vision. I'm hoping that by drawing, as it were, a character sketch of the points at which his life was like ours, the way in which he himself was like us, to explore why he touched our lives so deeply, why it is that he resonates with so many people. I'd like to talk about the way he is like us, but so much bigger than most of us. First, the very obvious things. He was English, he was middle class, he was Anglican. I suspect these things apply to quite a few people in this room. He was born in 1906, so he had all the hang-ups that were still around in the, well, in a sense, almost a st the still around to some extent. He was for many years a reserved and inhibited man, as man, as so many were of his background. He lived in the south of England, he was educated in the south of England, he went to, to Oxford. Be could very easily have been mindful. Oh, she had been, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was very English. Indeed, his Englishness was sometimes affectionately laughed at. And that precise Oxford accent must have sounded extraordinary when it was first heard amongst the coconut groves. He never quite lost the air of a rather patriarchal, donnish, very English figure, and he knew it. 
the most important single experience of his life, the great mind-blowing catalyst of his youth, happened when he was 17. You're probably all familiar with this, but it is so crucial to his life that I'd like to read you a bit of it now. He was 17 years old, walking in the school playing fields. He'd walked this way before. He'd seen other beautiful evenings. He'd often heard the birds singing with that full-throated ease which precedes the dying of the day. But this day was different. He writes this at the beginning of the Golden Stream. I remember now the shock of surprise with which the sound broke on my ears. It seemed to me that I had never heard the birds singing before, and I wondered whether they sang like this all the year round, and I had never noticed it. As I walked on, I came upon some hawthorn trees in full bloom, and again I thought that I had never seen such a sight or experienced such sweetness before. If I had been brought suddenly among the trees of the Garden of Paradise and heard a choir of angels singing, I could not have been more surprised. I came then to where the sun was setting over the playing fields. A lark rose suddenly from the ground beside the tree where I was standing and poured out its song above my head and then sank, still singing, to rest. Everything then grew still as the sunset faded and the veil of dusk began to cover the earth. I remember now the feeling of awe which came over me. I felt inclined to kneel on the ground as though I had been standing in the presence of an angel and I hardly dared to look on the face of the sky because it seemed as though it was but a veil before the face of God. Many of us had similar experiences. I had one such when I was 15, also at school. I cannot talk as articulately as Bede about it. Actually, I can hardly talk about it at all. But I know it changed my life, determined the direction my life would take, just as in a much more complete way, Bede's experience determined his future. I know too that one of the reasons I was drawn to Bede so strongly and instinctively was because he'd written about his experience and thus enabled us to share it with him and to admit and understand our own a little bit better. I think it's almost impossible to overestimate the experience of that, the importance of that experience in Bede's life, as there's a sense in which his whole life was a living out of it. For much of his life, consciously or unconsciously, he was always seeking the state of ecstasy he'd glimpsed on that summer evening. As a young man, it led him to maintain that a new religion was needed and that its prophets were Wordsworth, Shelley and Keats. For his religion was the worship of nature and he could see no connection between the God man manifested in nature and the God preached in church. From that moment in his young schoolboy's life, everything changed. His only pleasure became the mysterious, almost sacramental communion with nature. One of the most moving things, I think, about his life was that he had to wait until he was over 80 years old before he recaptured it in his fullness. But here in the school playing grounds, in the year of 1924, his search for God had begun. Another strong influence, which is fairly unfashionable these days, I think, is the influence of classics. He went up to Oxford in 1925 to read classics. 
And there he found the university was divided into two categories, the athletes and the aesthetes. B, then he'd hardly say, came into the second category, industrious, poor, rarely meeting girls, loving nature and walking and spending most of his free time with two special friends, Martin Skinner and Hugh Waterman. Incidentally, it says something for that friendship that it continued all their lives until one by one they all died. And their correspondence, which is in the Bodleian Library, it's really, it's marvellous. I had some wonderful hours with that. This classical background shows in much of Bede's thought and writing. It was the intellectual backbone of his life, as the great mystical experience was the heart of his spiritual life. He did well in classics, but he decided to change to English literature, hoping that would near to bring him nearer to living out his vision, and that the poetic imagination would help him to keep in touch with the reality he glimpsed that summer evening at school. And it was, of course, through reading English lit literature that he met C.S. Lewis and came to know members of the famous Inklings group, though he was never a member. One of the reasons he was not a full member reflects rather sadly on him. There was a lot of laughing and drinking and joking amongst the Inklings, and at that time Bede was considered rather serious, rather lacking in humour. I wonder how you identify with Bede so far. Um, there's certainly a parallel here for me, but like, because I belong to the generation that had to study Latin at school and preferably Greek as well. The great classical myths were part of our mealtime conversations with the family. But the other thing, of course, is also achievement. This concern with achievement. achievement. And here, too, I think Bede echoes our plight, because he, too, had his goal, and he had to wait six to six years before he reached it. I find that, as I said already, such a poignant thing. His was, of course, a mystical goal, not a materialistic one. But it could be argued that his search for a repeat of his childhood experience, for its full realisation, was actually delayed by too great an experience on the intellect. And here is another reason that he is so valuable to us today. He delved and sought and explored and learnt about Eastern religions and about Christianity. He was not content with a wishy-washy sentimentality as so many of us are today. If his learning delayed his joy, then so did it enrich his legacy. For he really knew, he knew with both mind and heart what he was talking about, what he sought, what he experienced. Community. I don't know how many people here have ever lived in community, but um, Bede had a go at it at a place called Eastington. I'm not going to say a huge amount about this year, though it was crucially important. It was 1930. And he and Hugh and Martin, his two great friends, went to this small community in Eastington. You can still see the house. It's just off that road, what is it, the A something or other, goes out of Oxford, about 30 miles from Oxford. And I actually went to the cottage, and, and they, they still remember him. They call him Beady, or Beady, he lived here. The three young men, they had been in their early 20s at the time, intended to reject the civilization they'd come to criticize so deeply and to live without machines or gadgets or any of the products of civilization. In fact, they wanted to have nothing to do with anything 
made during or after the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> so they were not only totally self-sufficient, they filled their pitchers from the village tap, read by candlelight, wrote with quill pens, refused to use razor blades, and shunned the gramophone on the wireless. What they have made of emails, I can't think. <laughs> Once again, they did it in style, carried out their ideals to the letter. It was idealism writ large. The reason I don't think we can identify very easily with them is quite interesting. For any of us under, say, 50, it doesn't seem in the least remarkable to live as near nature as possible in small self-sufficient communities. Indeed, in the 60s, it was the sort of thing lots of people were doing. On the other hand, those of us over 50 simply didn't do it. And apart from a few rare exceptions like Tolstoy, hadn't even thought of it. Yet community and ecology and our attitude to the earth is deep in our hearts. I remember first hearing about it from Fraser Darling of all people. We were devastated by it. We were devastated when we began to see it happening. We're devastated by it now. But not an awful lot of people do much about it. And here again, Bede was ahead of his time. He saw, he cared, and he tried to do something about it. Not by campaigning or writing letters to the press, but by trying to live out his ideals. So already, by the time he was in his twenties, Bede was seen to be like us, but taking it further, being braver, in short, being a pioneer. The fact that the little community broke up after less than a year doesn't make it any less significant. Many bold, significant pioneering attempts have failed. Think of Scott of the Antarctic. He reached the South Pole at his second attempt, only to find that Amundsen had beaten him to it. They all died on the return journey. But who is the best remembered, the best loved, the great explorers? Yet the experiment, as they referred to their year at Eastington, should not, in fact, be regarded as a failure. They were profoundly influenced by their shared motivation and the sense of unity deriving from their conviction that what was nearest to nature was good. Bede referred to it as the decisive event of our lives. It bound three of them together with hoops of steel. So these two great experiences, the mystical experience and the experience of living in community, three, the classics and the whole Oxford thing, at all, through all these experiences, he wasn't really a Christian. He was brought up Anglican, but by the time he was at Oxford, he and his friends were finding Christianity drab and out of date. That's a direct quote from what he said, drab and out of date. The seeds of his Christianity were nourished in conversation with C.S. Lewis when he was at Oxford, who at the time was no more a Christian than Bede was. It was a curious friendship. Bede says that a tutorial with Lewis was a battle of wits, and it was through opposition that one came to friendship with him. Lewis said their friendship began in disagreement and ended in argument. <laughs> Yet friendship it undoubtedly was, and they became Christians at the same time in the mid-1950s, arguing to the brink. For Bede became a Roman Catholic, and Lewis, an Ulsterman and a Protestant to his bones, was convinced that Bede was trying to convert him. They fell out quite badly over that, but remained friends always. Many of us, again, I think will resonate to this development of a Christian upbringing, followed by disillusion, then conversion. Then there was the whole question of the church. But 
We'll come to that later, I guess. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be a joke. <laughs> I see why you're laughing. The pull of the East. Many of us will resonate with Bede's dissatisfaction with Western Christianity and his longing to go to India. Here again, he was like us, but bigger than us. Many of us long for the East, long for India. Bede touches my life again here. Like many people, in my twenties, I had a fleeting understanding, if that is too strong a word, of Nirvana and how in Nirvana the Atman is absorbed into Brahman. It blew my mind and I started practicing Eastern meditation soon after that. Many of us have been to India, sometimes even for quite long periods. Here again, Bede took our longings further. He went to live there when he was 49 and he spent the remaining 38 years of his life there. And he did it properly. He dressed like a Hindu sadhu, he ate Indian food, he incorporated Hindu rituals into the liturgy. You probably know all about that and probably many of you have been there. Most of all, he absorbed Indian philosophy and religion. He was a pioneer in the marriage of East and West. And for the second half of this talk, I want to explore the way in which what he's lived reflects a need in us and what we can learn from him, how we can take his vision further. So just what do people, what do beads seek in the East? He himself expresses with his usual classic clarity why he needed to go to India. The beginning of his book, A Marriage of East and West, is like this. I had, begin to I had begun to find that there was something lacking, not only in the Western world, but in the Western church. We were living from one half of our soul, from the conscious rational level, and we needed to discover the other half, the unconscious, intuitive dimension. I wanted to experience in my life the marriage of these two dimensions of human existence, the rational and intuitive, the conscious and unconscious, the masculine and feminine. I wanted to find a way to the marriage of East and West the rational and intuitive, the conscious and the unconscious, the masculine and the feminine. He's very clear what he sought, and he found it. For the first time, it was not the beauty of nature that entranced him, so much as the sheer beauty and vitality of the people, of the human form. Like anyone visiting India for the first time, he was overwhelmed by the smells, the noise, the exuberant swarming masses, children running around naked, women in saris, men in turbans, cows wandering around the streets, even sleeping, disdainful of danger, in the midst of the traffic. Almost immediately he felt at one with the Indian people and began to discover, as he had hoped he would, the dimension, the dimension he had found missing in the West, the other half of his soul. This is what he wrote about his first impressions of India. Whether sitting or standing or walking, there was grace in all their movements, and I felt I was in the presence of a hidden power of nature. I explained it to myself by saying that these people were living from the unconscious. People in the West are dominated by the conscious mind. They go about their business, each shut up in their ego. There's a kind of fixed determination in their minds, which makes their movements and gestures stiff and awkward and they all tend to wear the same drab clothes. 
But in the East, people live not from the conscious mind, but from the unconscious, from the body, not from the mind. As a result, they have the natural, spontaneous beauty of flowers and animals, and their dress is as varied and colourful as that of a flower garden. And we always seem to remember that nowadays, lots of people go to India and have done for the last 30, 40 years, but this was before the great travels to, to India. It was, uh, what, it was through the 50s. And um, so it was, much, it was much fresher and newer to him. It wasn't quite comparable with the experience that we had. But he found exuberance and colour and a sense of the sacred, a respect for the earth. Over the years, India confirmed his instinct that God need not be claimed as the exclusive property of any one religion, but that the various religions have the same goal, that there are, as an Indian poem has it, many ways up a mountain. Another thing that sets Bede apart was, as I, as I indicated earlier, he really studied. He was not much of a linguist, but he did at least try to learn Sanskrit, and he read the texts. He had an excellent grasp of the theology and philosophy underlying Eastern religions. We tend to talk about area about Eastern mysticism without having an awful lot of knowledge on the subject. At least I've heard an awful lot of that. I expect you have too. He, but he did really try to learn what he was talking about. Which brings us quite easily and naturally into a new era of consciousness, which is a phrase he used quite often. He felt we were moving into a new era of consciousness. And I don't really want to get drawn into the new age here, because it's very, um, it's very close to what Bede was talking about. And in a way, Bede was as sympathetic to the, the new age. But I don't know about you, but I personally don't like the expression new age. I think all it is is a sort of umbrella term for a whole lot of different, mean, different movements and meanings. And it's become a bit sort of tarnished and bedraggled. But so I think if we can stick to Bede's phrase, a new era of consciousness, it's got a bit of freshness about it. As early as 1966, nearly 40 years ago, well before most people, Bede was writing that we were in a state of transition between the breakup of ancient cultures and the birth of a new civilization. He was brought up in these ancient cultures, remembering his classical background, and he could see it more clearly then, perhaps, than we can now, as Latin and Greek become a dim memory. Six years later, in 1972, he wrote to a friend, I feel that we're on the eve of a breakthrough in consciousness of a new wave of civilization. In 1979, daring to speak in public, and he was very brave about speaking in public. Incidentally, some friends of mine went to, went to India, went to Shantivanam, and they asked him how he got away with it, and didn't, um, didn't he ever wonder if the Vatican was going to get after him. And um, apparently he just looked at them sideways and said, we're a long way from the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> so to some extent he was protected by distance and by his, his own, well greatness is a big word, but his own stature. Bede was convinced that the dawning of this new consciousness was a result of the West coming into contact with the East. He realised before most people that we're leaving the age of Western domination. Thank, or have we yet? Would you say we had? 
the rational mind inherited from Greek philosophy and Roman law of patriarchy, where at the end of an age and a new order of being and consciousness is emerging. How do we relate to that? Perhaps that's something we might discuss in a few minutes. But I think many of us are aware of the shift of consciousness, the change of paradigms, even if we cannot always be very articulate about it. We're no longer a patriarchy. The feminine is regaining its true place. We acknowledge feelings rather than commending the stiff upper lip. We favour dialogue over control, at least in theory. We realise that man is the steward of creation and not its ruler, again, at least in theory. I think the whole question of a new order of consciousness is one of those rare areas in which value judgment can play a part. Are the changes of consciousness that we perceive for the better? Are we evolving upward? Do we need a base from which to evolve? Or are we content to break away altogether from tradition? And here in this concept, context, let us remember how large a part B played in helping us to see this, these possibilities. Meditation. I don't need to say in this room that one of the best ways, possibly the only way, to evolve spiritually is through meditation. It was at the heart of Reed's teaching. Martin Skinner's daughter, Kate, who knew him well, once asked him what he could teach her. And he said, meditate. That's all I can tell you, meditate. It's very likely that many of us have received little or possibly no training in prayer. We welcome, as Bede did, the discovery of the practice of meditation. In particular, two aspects of meditation that are neglected in Christian teaching, almost totally in my experience, method and posture. In the West, such things tend to be dismissed as putting technique before grace, but we could be, do better to learn from them giving them their due as helpful aids on the path of reflection and contemplation. Bede pointed this shortcoming out in an article in Monastic Studies. He wrote that Western methods of prayer and meditation, while having a deep supernatural basis, are extremely weak when it comes to the natural basis, that is, the physical and the psychological basis. He realised that Westerners, seeking a contemplative lifestyle, needed to listen to the voice of the East and learn methods of prayer and discipline and contemplation. Just as he needed to go to India to find the other half of his soul, so he recognised this need in others. It was very brave, I think, to write in this way in an article in a magazine like Monastic Studies. And he did the same thing in the tablet, his exchanges with the editor of the tablet make really quite good reading. I sometimes think somebody should publish them. There are people in the Christian West who resist Eastern methods of meditation and are convinced that everything needed is available in Christian prayer and liturgy. Bede was not one of them. Nor, if I may speak from the ranks of the dwarves, am I. For too long, he claimed, we have been content with a form of prayer which is content to remain on the level of adoration praise, thanksgiving, repetition, repentance. And the ancient ideal of contemplation, of the direct experience of God in prayer, has been almost lost to view. In the same way, we've been content with a theology 
which is based on reason, illumined by faith, but does not lead to an experience of God in the spirit. He felt that we're entering a new age of the church and the world, and that it was in the meeting of the East and West at the level of meditation and contemplation, and that that was the sign of the new age. But how do we accommodate the East and the West within us? Speaking for myself, I first came across Eastern meditation in the 60s. After just a few weeks, for the first time, after years of rather desultory Anglicanism, I began to glimpse the meaning of the fourth gospel. I thrilled to a new understanding of what the psalmist meant when he said, darkness and light to thee are both alike. I read the cloud of unknowing, moved to the core by lines such as, a naked intention directed to God and himself alone is wholly sufficient. Much later, after hours of Eastern meditation, much reading of Eastern texts and Christian mystics, I became a Roman Catholic. So the East, far from taking me away from Christianity, had drawn me to its heart in a new way. I tell that rather personal aside simply because I, I'm so exasperated with Christians who think it's sort of slightly naughty to, to, to do Eastern meditation. And some of the Vatican pronouncements on the subject I find quite extraordinary. For Bede, the aim of meditation like that lovely quote that Liz read at the end, one of my favourite bead quotes on meditation. The aim of meditation was to pass beyond the limits of the rational consciousness and awake to the inner life of the spirit, to the indwelling presence of God. The diversity of modern life has strengthened our need for unity. The flight from God to science and technology has led to our realisation that we're nothing if we do not make the journey inwards. We are, I think, learning the value of silence, learning that silent meditation can lead to a sense of union, travelling beyond doctrine and dogma to a glimpse of the transcendental reality. We are learning that though there are many methods of meditating, indeed many religions, many faith traditions, they all lead to the same place. Meditation is the first step on this journey and Bede himself did, mostly did the Meet Jesus prayer, but as you know, he admired John Main enormously and encouraged people to do John Main's meditation. The meditation discovered by John Main, I'm sorry, Lawrence, <laughs> I've been caught out on that before. <laughs> um, it's not only the first step, it's the journey itself and it's the end as well. In meditation, the, unit, the meditator is taken beyond the duality that pervades so much Western thinking to an experience of unity. This ex emphasis on direct experience is precisely in tune with many Westerners who are unwilling to, play with um, to pray with concepts. Many are even unhappy with images in the Ignatian style. John Maine, you probably know what one of the things he said was, Meditation verifies the truths of your faith in your own experience. In 1990, Bede had a stroke. It was to lead to his greatest mystical experience. I'm not going to talk about the stroke itself, but I must talk about the effect it had on him. Earlier I suggested that there is a way in which the whole of Bede's life can be seen as a search to re-experience those moments in the school programme when he knew. Somehow, during all those 66 years, 
He had longed for repetition of the experience, but it hadn't happened. He'd had to wait many, many years, but at last it happened, and he was like a man reborn. I want to end with two things he said during those, those days. As though he used to live another two very active years, he did, in these weeks of extreme illness, reach something beyond any experience he had previously had. Though before he talked about it, now he knew. He felt totally free. The ego had collapsed, all the barriers had broken down. And the two things I'd like to read, first is about surrender. He said, I'd had some breakfast, and then I felt sort of restless, disturbed, not quite knowing what was happening. The inspiration came suddenly to surrender to the mother. It was quite unexpected, surrender to the mother. And so I somehow made a surrender to the mother. Then I had an experience of overwhelming love. Waves of love sort of flowed into me. Judy Walter, my great friend, was watching. Friends were beside me all the time. I called out to her, I'm being overwhelmed by love. And the second one is more about love. Death, the mother, the void, all was love. It was an overwhelming love, so strong that I could not contain myself. I did not know whether I would survive. I knew I had to die, but whether it would be in this world or another, I did not know. At first I thought I would die and just be engulfed in this love. It was the unconditional love of which I had often spoken, utterly mysterious, beyond words. I think Beef was a really great man and a great prophet, and whether we actually knew him or not, and I, alas, didn't, I think we're very fortunate to have him, his work and his life available to us.